Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today is, you could say, a, um, a modern-day Renaissance man, in that even though he has had a very illustrious career in emergency medicine and world-renowned, I'd say, in aviation medicine, he is one of the few doctors, I would say, in the, in my immediate circle that's you know successfully put down the stethoscope and, and picked up uh, anything to do with technology successfully. A man of, of many accolades and traits. It's my pleasure to introduce Laurent. Tamens. Rod, welcome to the Rodcast. Rod, I mean, I, this is like a, such a really amazing intro. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually blushing. So thank you very much. Uh, no, I think it's true. I think, you know, one of, one of the things we always get criticized for as doctors is, is not knowing anything except medicine, like just burying our heads in exactly. medicine and really being really bad at tech. Every time you try to teach a new doctor like how to use a new patient system, yeah, they get it's really just, frustrated, right? It's a heartache for everybody, for the doctor, for the person trying to teach them. But uh, you've gone a different route, and and I think you've always been uh, interested in in tech. Um, I'm I'm keen to hear sort of you know have you always had that interest? Was it something that sort of came later on in in life? And and how are you using it today with you know, combining it with the medical stuff. Well, I mean, that's a that's that's really interesting. The, the, I mean, actually, the story starts in 1996, right? So, 96, I was I just I had freshly graduated from medical school, and I was involved in the emergency medicine sector in the center of Brussels. And I was actually I was I was one of the youngest emergency doctors in in the in the community and. One of the, the reason I got into tech was actually one of the challenges that we were experiencing was like, I think it's an, a never ending story. It's around budgeting and you need to be able to talk with um, hospital administrators around the money that you're bringing in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The money that you're bringing in, the, the value that you're bringing to the, to the facility, the clinic, et cetera. And where I was working, the hospital was particularly social so you can imagine when it's really when it's really an inner city hospital there aren't very many people that have money and so hospitals really are on a on a really tight budget and so when we were working to look at our budget i realized that all of this data that we had in the papers um all these papers that we had none of it was really making sense and so I thought I said, well, you know what? Let's start looking into, you know, different, you know, different things that we could use. And it was at the time, 1996. It was uh, 46, you know, a Pentium 486 computers and Microsoft Access. Like I think it was version one or two. And <laughs> that was my initial. That was my initial exposure to database, to data, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was really interesting. I mean, uh, I, I, I literally, I, I, I worked tirelessly for several, I mean, for weeks, day and night, um, because I, I wanted to understand all of this and I found it really fascinating. And what was even better was actually taking all of that data and being able to find some actionable insight on it 
and say, well, wait a second, this is something you're saying, but actually I can prove the contrary, or actually what you're saying is right, because this is, these are the numbers that here, that are here to support. And so it was, that was the beginning. And then obviously, you know, that's when you go down the rabbit hole, right? So you start looking at data, you start looking at databases, you start looking at electronic health records, you start realizing that, wait a second, um, there are ways to work smarter, not necessarily harder, where you can actually make yourself much more efficient. And you go down that road, 2000, that was when, that was really when things started taking off is when it was actually when I was involved in implementing electronic health records in the emergency room. It wasn't necessarily as successful as I thought it would be, but it was a really interesting project. And it was, in, it was my first initial exposure to the fact that a computer system could have an impact on, uh, on, on a service, on, on, on an emergency, on an emergency room. So it could have an impact going from the doctors, to the nurses, to the cleaning staff. So that's when I realized the power, that's when I really realized the power of IT and the power and actually the usefulness of IT. And to your point, over these last couple of years, you know, three, four years, it's been really exciting. And it's been really exciting because, you know, in the past, it was just a question of, you know, we have faster computers, we have faster databases, we have better user interfaces, we, we can, you know, we have our iPhones, we have our iPads, et cetera, et cetera. But here, what's really interesting is there is a, there is a new step that's, that's there. And that new step is large language models. It's machine learning. It's, it's actually the whole plethora of um, technology that's available to us. And it's in a sense, it's really, it's really exciting, but also in a sense, it's really frightening because we're at the beginning, it's the wild, wild west. And mm. when you say the wild, wild west, it's really that there's, we're, we're sort of figuring out what are the rules, what are the rules that we can work in? What, what are the boundaries that we can work in? So example, um, when large language models come out and the one that's most known is ChatGPT, but if you go on the internet, there are very many, there are quite a lot of them out there. Um, and, and maybe just for the audience, explain what language models are. You're going to take a very big bag of words sentences, phrases, paragraphs, and you're going to feed them to, um, you're going to feed them to an artificial intelligence entity, a bot or, or a neural network. And they're going to have millions, if not billions of parameters. So millions, if not billions of parameters, uh, it's basically what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, you're going to say the, and then what's the next word? And what's the next word? And what's the word after that? And they're mm. basically going to be using that. And it's basically a very interesting chess game because what you're doing is you're feeding them all your all the knowledge that we have. It's like in in the fan, in the science fiction movies where you see the robots basically taking a book and then flipping the pages really fast. It's the same thing with lang large language models. They take all of this knowledge. They create statistical models. And those statistical models are able to come out with very enhanced responses. And so 
the real value is the fact that they are millions, if not billions of parameters. And those parameters actually allow it to be as precise or as, as, um, as compelling as what we have right now. And, and a really, really dumb question, but sure. Um, you know, ChatGPT says, well, now it's changed with the plugins and all that stuff, but mm -hmm. it, it was stating that it can only use data like before 2021 before. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, I assume like when I hear that, that it basically gathered all the, everything on the internet exactly. before 2021. Now my, my dumb question is where did that, all that information sit so that somebody could then like mine it? Oh, so, so there are many different locations. I know I, the, the ones that come to the, the ones that come to mind are GDELT. Uh, so GDELT is an open source initiative supported by Google. Um, then there's supported by Google where they basically take all of the written and the written, the video and the audio, um, information from the internet. And then there's the, there's, there's the internet archive that they can use. And then there are many different other sources. I mean, ChatGPT in itself, and, and this is the future, right? So any companies that are involved with artificial intelligence, what is going to be the challenge? It's not the model. It's not building the model. It's actually feeding the model data that they can use to be able to learn. And if you look at it, you know, I'll take an example. I'll take a completely different example. I'll take Tesla, right? What is their data? It's all the driving data that come from all of the cars they've sold. Yeah. And you can imagine that virtuous cycle. So they sell more cars, they have more data, they have more data they can feed to their, 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 their artificial intelligence models. Actually, their artificial intelligence models can continue to enhance. And actually, it's a virtuous cycle because actually, the better the software, the more cars they sell because people are like, oh, this is a really nice car. Hmm. To the point where actually Tesla is getting, is actually starting, and this is something I learned not a very long time ago, they're hiring professional drivers because they want to really fine tune their data to the point where it's incredibly minute, it's incredibly minutious. And that, that um, of course, that minutia, they can't have it with just a, a driver outside. No, they need to have a driver that's going to drive very in a set pattern so that way that way can that way it can be really precise really up to date and this is this is the beauty of artificial intelligence machine learning which is if you can create a model and you can create a data collection process it is going to be a virtuous cycle and this is where this is where a lot of the questions come because actually who does that who does that data belong to who does that model belong to so i'll, I'll give you an example ChatGPT, they use all of our prompts as ways to enhance the parameters but yeah. actually who does that prompt belong to well you're the one that that created the prompt you, you said mm. well you know uh, act like a physician i want to have a clinical summary of this medical report that's pasted below in a very in a very summarized and scientifically correct fashion, right? You, you can imagine the prompt. Well, wait a second. That data that you just gave to ChatGPT, even though they say it belongs to you, they're going to use it to be able to train their model. 
Yeah. So that's where that's where it becomes really, really tough for companies to be able to understand how they can best leverage it. And they can leverage it. There are there are different ways that you can leverage not just Chat GPT but other other initiatives. But it's going to be um, it's going to be a differentiator in the future. And is there any way? Because you know when when I think of like the medical landscape and AI, the first thing that comes to mind is like Watson and you know the, some supercomputer that that um, maybe had less success than we all hoped it yeah, would. We all hoped, yeah. <laughs> but um, so so it makes me think that it is possible to have some sort of data privacy, like patient data in an AI type of environment mm-hmm. um i mean is there a way like if i'm a hospital to use chat GB, maybe not chat GBT, but some some Absolutely. like api or something for for my own data you, you can even so what do you really need large language models there are many models that exist out there and that people can use in any way shape or form but what you really need to be able to have a compelling large language model is good data. So if hospitals have been really um, serious about collecting the data, electronic health records, making sure that they are correct, yes, they can use large language models on, you know, they can train large language models with the data that they already have. Now, this is where this is where the devil the devil is in the details, right? Because some electronic health records uh, they don't belong to the hospital; they belong to the electronic health record company. Oh. And this is where this is where you this is where there is um, this is where you separate the men from the boys. This is where clinics that have said since the beginning we want to be we want to remain proprietary to that information or that information could belong to a third party, but we're, we can be privy to it. This is where, this is where it separates the men from the boys. People that have a long-term vision saying data is money or data is value and value is money in our society. Um, those, institutions that recognize that data has value, immense value, are the ones that will thrive in this industry. The ones that consider electronic health records as a tool and nothing more, and there is no data behind it that is of value. And basically they don't value, um, they they haven't respected the, the value of the data in the past because they decided, you know, they're okay, well, why spend more money on IT when we can, when we can, um, you know, when we can have this tool, spend that's it on different. bonuses. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that's where that's where th- this is where it's it's very tricky in the healthcare industry. And to your point, when you initially when you initially introduced me, um, it is it is a fact that physicians are not tech savvy. And there will be physicians that are more tech savvy than others. But I will, for the sake of debate, say, actually, it is a core part of what we do. 
it is, it is, if someone says, oh, I can't use a computer and their physician run away. Yeah. Because, well, wait a second, 90% of, well, actually 95% of what we do as physicians in the hospital setting or in the GP setting or whatever, um, is linked to technology. You're using electronic health records. You're yeah. using, you're using equipment. You're, uh, you're interfacing with others to be able to see lab results or whatever, or radiology or imaging results. So no, it, technology is there. And if they're not leveraging technology or they, they don't feel comfortable with it, then they're not leveraging it to the best of their patient's needs. Yeah, I remember uh, working in a private hospital and there was this, you know, you have these like legacy physicians that are world famous and um, they're living legends, but they're like 180 years old and still seeing patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember they would, they would, you know, they see the celebrities, the, you know, the, the big wigs, the ex-presidents and stuff. And and I, I remember they would, there's this one guy who's an amazing cardiologist, uh, and he would, he was still prescribing like stuff that had been discontinued, like they didn't sell it anymore. And it's probably because he didn't get the emails, you know, saying, look, this is the updated treatment. This is discontinued. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I can, I can totally see that. And I think, you know, speaking of like, you know, industries that are are really leveraging this and, and taking hitting the ground running um i saw you know with the with the actors guild awards and the sags and the writers guild um mm -hmm. on strike i mean talk about like bad timing and pr like netflix just put out i think a, a job posting for a head of ai for nine hundred thousand dollars uh, base salary um, and that's what like the people not who haven't been following the strikes, like that's a big part of what the strikes are about is that there's mm -hmm. no rail guards in place for the industry, for writers losing their jobs to AI or even actors. Like, I don't know if you saw that video clip of Bruce Willis in like some AI generated TV commercial in Russia. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like, it, I mean, even the acting was was uh, was pretty good. So, um, what do we need to do as clinicians? I mean, in lieu in lieu of like going on strike and you know getting people's attention, like what what can we do to to really get the message to those like writing policies and people in charge to realize that like better patient care needs to be. Uh, leveraged, you know, you need to leverage AI for, for that. Cause I, I think people understand, like, especially in the, in the medical clinical setting, they say, okay, technology will help, but I, I still don't think there's that realization that no, it'll do more than help. It'll, it'll actually like save lives. Where can you use artificial intelligence in healthcare, right? So you can use artificial intelligence at the patient's bedside, and it's going to be an enhancer to the physician's engagement with that with uh, the patient but you can also use artificial intelligence in the system so being able to manage uh resources efficiently etc 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 um and i think this is where this is where it becomes regulatory this is where it becomes um linked to um to the to government right example telemedicine there are 
various approaches to telemedicine. There are countries that fully embrace it, other countries that are a little bit reticent. Other countries actually don't even acknowledge it or just ban it completely because they're just not a they're just not aware. It's probably going to be the same thing with artificial intelligence. So some countries are going to use artificial intelligence for what it is. It's a tool that allows to enhance um, humans and, and society. Um, and you can use it to do actually something fantastic. So, um, you know, off the, off the top of my head, I haven't think, thought about this. Um, I haven't been able to really deep dive into this, but it's going to be managing the system. So healthcare providers, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, obviously at the patient's bedside, you know, decision-making processes, et cetera, et cetera. But it's going, it's not going to be at the level of the physicians. The physicians will say, this is possible or this isn't, this is what works. This is, this is what works and this isn't. But governments are the ones that are going to say, as per regulation, this is allowed and this isn't. Yeah, I, I think um, where my head was at was that I think as clinicians, maybe, I don't know, we, we can use the excuse that we don't have time, um, which we, we always use that excuse for everything. I, I think we've been historically like maybe a bit complacent in the sense that we're not pushing the people who make those decisions, I think, hard enough. So like if you look at, yeah, okay, you could argue that, I mean, the actors, the writers, like, they they wouldn't make especially the low level entry level writers like why would they have any voice in telling you know the people who make the the rules oh you you have to put laws in place to to say that this script was written by ai or it was written by by human i think we we need to yeah i've always thought we need to find a way to push you know as physicians to say look guys you really need to adopt you know technology much quicker and, and a great example is like electronic healthcare records like it's still not a you know fully embraced thing in in a lot of, of countries and the fact that even in one country one hospital in one part of the country can't talk to another one because it's it's a different provider is is absolutely like mind-blowing this is where we're going to start seeing uh digital divide right so and it's something it's not something new so access to the internet, we've, it's been demonstrated that countries that have good access to internet are well, have a higher GDP, have better economic figures, and it's going to continue like this, right? So having access to internet, having, having access, well, having uh, a good regulatory framework in regards to um, health, well, in regards to records in general, in regards to electronic records in general. And then add to that, there's going to be a healthy framework or there's going to be a, um, a well-thought framework in regards to the use of artificial intelligence. And I think company, a country, sorry, that um, have something that is, or that have this, this mindset, okay, we need to create a framework. We know we don't, we can't figure out what's, what is the future, but we need to have a framework and we need to say what is the what are the boundaries that we can work in. Those countries are going to are going to um, are going to be much better off than others. And and the problem that you've that you've raised is countries that don't have that regulatory framework. 
they're going to find themselves with the best. They're going to find themselves with the, the best and the worst of worst of both worlds because they're going to be innovators, obviously, in that country, and those innovators are going to leverage as much as they can that innovation. But there are also going to be some people that are not going to leverage it in the right way. They're going to leverage it in a very unethical manner, and that's even worse. And this is where this is where it really gives a great disservice to these tools because in a sense completely agree these tools need to be regulated need to be appropriate but wait a second these tools are they are exactly that these are tools and we need to know we need to understand how best to use them and we need to we need to be sure that when we use them they're not going to be harmful to society or to individuals or, or both at the same time I think uh, one of my favorite, probably one of my favorite analogies to um, ChatGPT and AI is um, uh, one that the president of Microsoft gave. He was saying that you know they've they've had this conversation a billion times about mm -hmm. what they compare it to, like do they compare it to the wheel, um, to you know fire, uh, to the internet. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of agreed that the best comparison is to the printing press. Okay. So the Very printing, good. yeah, the printing press. Yeah, I really like that one because the printing press, what it did was it allowed disseminate knowledge very quickly. Um, so, you know, whether it was writing books, but also disseminate ideas like really quickly. And okay. when people realized that that it was it was such a game changer and it had the power to like people printing out little you know brochures and handing them on the streets like you can convince a mob to you know overthrow a government and i, I think a, an example he gave was that um when they found that out i think i think turkey banned um books uh, or you know, um, using use of the printing press originally because they said, yeah, yeah, this is just going to overthrow everything. But um, yeah, I mean, and and now look, it's it's taken so long, and obviously there was a, a huge teething phase of the printing press and the rest, and you had these like the um, these what was that guy's yeah, what was that guy's name that was put in jail? Like he wrote the scarlet was it the scarlet letters? He was the Marquis of something. Can't remember. My 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 general culture really is. Really is <laughs> so you is are a doctor. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, mine's mine's pretty terrible. But it was oh the Mar Marquis de Marquez de Sala. Okay. I can't remember what it is in English. But uh, yeah, he yeah he's the guy that wrote like you know it was like soft porn and stuff in the form yeah. of literary and they put him in jail and so that was like another example of like the power of you know writing and the printing press and mass dissemination so i think it's i mean we'll see how fast or quick it goes but it's definitely inevitable that it goes into the wrong and i think we're already seeing it you know there's these cases of of um extortion cases i don't know if you you've you've uh, i haven't you've heard, heard of that yeah um without giving any names but uh, there was a recent case where there was a, a student that was um traveling 
um, and um, there was some sort of extortion to the parents, and the, the extortion came in the form of a phone call to the parents and who's using the student's AI-generated voice. But what they'd done is they'd also tapped into uh, personal records. So the information that uh, was going into the exchange of the AI with the parents was completely accurate. They knew everything. And it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't just saying stuff in her voice. It was actually a back and forth conversation with the parents. Um, luckily, they they said something incorrect, which then triggered the one of the parents to think, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And, um, and then they made another phone call and found out that it was fake. But I mean, it was like, I mean, it's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. That's crazy. Another question I, I wanted to ask you is, uh, and I mean, feel free to like say, yeah, we, we don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. But I mean, with your like personal um, situation, like, you know, you, you, you had uh, a, a, a medical event. Obviously, that was, you know, before this AI euphoria and chat GBT. Have you thought of, of, you know, had this been um, more recent, like how AI could have like potentially helped you at all? So I'll put the, uh, so I'll, I'll answer it in two phases, right? So for my, my medical situation, it wouldn't have changed anything. But one of the things that I really recognize is it changes everything afterwards because everything that's linked to technology has and has a really fantastic impact on my productivity, on my creativity, on my autonomy for my life. Um, and, and it's very clear. I mean, um, I, I have been able to leverage all this. Now, in terms of the medicine, I don't see how it would have helped me. Uh, it wouldn't, have, it probably wouldn't have helped me. It would have, it probably would not have helped me at the acute phase of things, but it might have helped me in the chronic phase of things because once you go into rehab, what's really important, and this is something I've learned, is when you go into rehab, um, the medical personnel, you know, be they the physical therapists or the rehab physicians or whatever, they implement, they, they actually implement these templates. So they're like, and my, my templates, I, they were, it, it was designed for 70 or 80 year old people. And I'm, I'm, I, I was less than 50 years old. And I was like, come on. It's like, is this it? <laughs> so AI would have probably, would have probably helped improve my rehabilitation. My, would actually would have helped tailor my rehab to myself. I use artificial intelligence and machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, every single day in my job. And I, one of the things that is really interesting is what we do, you know, as medical directors is all a question of setting up uh, a framework, a process. And it's one of the ways to ensure that you don't, you're not going to be that single point of failure. You know, it's the, it, you know, the lotto effect, right? So if you win tomorrow, if you win the lottery tomorrow and you say you quit your job, how, how, um, easy will it be for the company to be able to continue to work without you around? And obviously they can replace you. Well, you know what? 
when you take into account the lotto factor and you take into account that you're working in a structure and a process and that what you're doing is trying to improve your efficiency and all of these tools actually fall on you you're like wow this is great actually i have all of these hours uh in my life that i've gained you know going from shortcuts to you know putting kind regards into my email or my signature to um you know ways to be able to summarize my documents and that is the the beauty of it all so in terms of healthcare i don't think it would have it, it would probably have helped me in the chronic phase in terms of my day-to-day -day life it is helping me enormously enormously in the sense of being able to being able to overcome my deficiencies through increasing my efficiencies in my weak points and you say you use it every day i mean are you at a point where you can't imagine your your day not like not being able to to use it oh yeah I'll, 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 so when i when i when i um i'll take an example when i travel i have a, a light version on my ipad and my iphone but if i don't have it it is it is <laughs> i'll put it this way um it's excruciating it's horrible it's like oh being able all of these all of these workflows and shortcuts and and i mean it it doesn't take away my intellectual the intellectual work that it needs to be done but it actually it's like i'll give an example um uh, i have a summary email that i'll send out to some of some people within the company uh that way they know where, where the projects are well being able to have a template that basically that basically lists all the elements that i need to do and basically the template in itself represents maybe seven seven or eight minutes of my work you know typing but well, wait a second if i have to do it all manually again number one it's, mm. it's excruciating it's seven or eight minutes lost and you're like what am i doing here and then yeah and then you're 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 not in the groove anymore because ultimately when i draft my templates i can get in i can i can get into my flow mode and i power it out within 15 20 minutes if i have to do it on my iphone and i don't have all of that access oh it's just horrible so when when you don't have it you realize to what point it really supports you in your work and it puts you in a place that is much more comfortable, much more creative, much more um, discerning. Uh, it, it's absolutely fantastic. And so imagine somebody who's like, you know, 40s, 50s, that's just hearing about, you know, the, the buzz of AI and chat GBT, and it still doesn't know like where, which pond to tip their toe in like where would you suggest that they they start well I'll, there, there's actually there's well there's an incredible amount of information on the internet and we all know uh that information needs to be taken with a grain of salt sometimes but um in regards to in regards to chat gpt in general um no in regards to artificial intelligence in general i would really encourage people to go to online courses like Harvard online courses that you can access for free Coursera, which is also, which is, which is, um, a, a really, really fantastic initiative. 
that was actually started by many different people, among others Andrew Ng, who is he, he's actually one of the one of the one of the godfathers of artificial intelligence. Um, and then there are many other resources that you can find on the internet, on YouTube, or that you could find on various courses. The second place I would actually push people would be not just to understand artificial intelligence, how to use it, et cetera, et cetera, but also understand the ethical implications, ethical, moral implications, mm -hmm. if you wish, and why. Because it allows you to have a sense of the bad and the good. So being able to understand the bad things actually allows you to be able to recognize the good things and to be able to use them efficiently in your in your life. And then obviously, um, the last thing, the last place I would go to is actually is actually just talk with people who have experience, because we're at the beginning of this revolution, right? And so no one is, no one knows it all. People have, you know, have knowledge left, right? And so being curious, being able to try, being able to, you know, saying to yourself, um, you know, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't. One of the analogies that I give to people is um, there was a successful business owner that um, wanted to retire. And he said, well, I'm going to retire in two years. And in the meantime, I'm going to train my daughter to take over that company. And the daughter high school dropout just doesn't know what she's doing. She says, I'm, I'm ready to rise to the occasion, but I'm going to ask a lot of stupid questions. And actually what really struck me was, well, wait a second. You ask once a stupid question, you probably, you, you have a, you know, you have a finite amount of stupid questions that you need to ask, but if you ask them all at one moment, you won't have any more stupid questions, but you'll have questions that are going to be on the next level. And this is the same thing with artificial intelligence. In the beginning, you're probably just going to fumble around. But as you fumble around, you're going to discover things and you're going to go to that next level. And that next level is where one day, it's like learning a language, one day you say something, you just say something. You don't, you, you don't think about it. And, well, and then you're like, and you're like, hmm, this happened to me. So this is great. And the, this is how you learn. And, the, and so learning there are many different resources that are available to you harvard coursera some some um some things on youtube podcasts but then also discussing talking around having time with people that have tried something and it's worked for them and understanding how it works for them and it might not work for you and it might work for you who knows I, I have a good story for you sure. on, on that because uh, I agree. Like the only way with any tools, like you got to play with it. Like just submerge yourself. You have yeah. nothing to lose. You know, it's free. Um, no one's going to see like the dumb questions you put in exactly. and how good they are. Like just do it. But um, <laughs> so um, I went to this uh, Chatham House uh, conference uh, on AI and it was the president of Microsoft. Okay. It was the um, the ex head of Twitter, um, who now took over like UK Gov, and she's like the chairman of like uh, all this IT tech stuff. And uh, Antonio Blair. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eclectic mix. And they were talking about AI and um, 
usually like the Chatham House format is they do like 45 minutes, 40 minutes, and then they open it up to questions to the audience. And then it was broadcast online. And I, um, you know, you, every time you go to these conferences, like sometimes you really want to ask a question, but there's like sometimes thousands of people like in there. And so it can be quite intimidating. So you want to ask like a good question, ask it the right way. Yeah. So I was like, okay, what question can I ask? And so the the night before I went to the conference, I just played with ChatGBT for it to give me like the best question to ask Tony Blair and you know all these other high profile folks. And you nailed it. It gave me something, and it didn't quite work. So I just kept on like playing with it, chatting with 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 ChatGBT and. And then I eventually said, like, give me one that's like a bit cheekier, like, you know, a bit more um, controversial, like on the edge. And no, but that's too long, like make it shorter and stuff. And so I I put on like my nice nice outfit so I can, you know, get selected to pick the question. And then 40 minutes went up and then they said, any questions? And a million hands went up in the audience by some miracle. You got um, chosen. I got I got chosen. And I asked it, and by the way, it was such an amazingly, I, I think, it was an amazing conference. question. Mm-hmm. No, the question was, yeah, the conference is fine. <laughs> the, the, the question was so good, and I, I say that because it wasn't mine. It was like AIs. Okay. And it was so good that the three panelists, like, they were so kind of intrigued by the question that they just, you know, they just kept on talking to me okay um answering the question and ignoring kind of the other questions and then after the conference ended there was like a line of people that came up to me business card say hey that was an amazing question i wanted to like reach out and connect and then same on linkedin like i had dozens of people like say hey i listened to the thing and it was so f- funny because I was I was debating in my mind like should I tell everyone that this question is an AI <laughs> generated and, question? And what did what did you do in the end? I didn't I didn't say it was AI generated, but everyone who contacted me online on LinkedIn, I said, "Oh yeah, thanks." That I wrote it with ChatGPT, and they and just what did found they say? Hilarious. Okay. Yeah, they just laughed their heads off because they thought it was so funny. But um, <laughs> it's so awesome. That's a really good story. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, it's like you go to AI conference and then you ask like an AI generated question to the panel, is, and none of them that knew is so, that. Like, that is so good. That is so awesome. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. But I'm um, yeah, to I go. thought it was good. Okay, yeah, that's fine. But um, yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks, pal. It's been great as always. Uh, it's, it's, it's I, I'm sure we'll have to we'll have to do another one because our conversation will be outdated probably in like two weeks. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, invite me whenever you want. I mean, they, uh, this what's really interesting with uh, with AI in general is it is such a fast moving topic, and mm. uh, there are so many possibilities with it, and. What's really, what's really interesting, and this is on, on a personal note, what's really interesting is it opens the doors to so many possibilities, but it's, it also has some inherent limitations. And once you understand which doors it could open and what limitations it does have, it gives you a much better appreciation of the fact that 
in the end, we are very intellectual and social animals and artificial intelligence used well increases the productivity, efficiency, happiness in your life, etc., etc. I mean, I can't, I can't begin to list all the things that I do with artificial intelligence or with, well, basically with, with computers in general, but uh, computers with um, technology in general. But I can tell you, my life is, my life is, is really comfortable and allows me to be in the space that I want to be in terms of creativity, in terms of intellectual stimulation. And that's where that this is what I believe fundamentally in the end, it allows us to express as individuals or, or as intellectual animals, the basis, the 80% that we don't use in our brains because we're so busy. We're, we're no longer busy trying to do things that are chaff. We're really doing things that are essential. But yeah. I, I, com I agree completely. Yeah. I, I think cool. people think it's gonna, it's gonna like isolate you and people won't interact, but actually it'll get rid of all the bullshit tasks exactly. you have at work in your life to go play with your kids yeah. or meet friends and stuff. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.